Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Hebrews chapter number 10. This couple of days we're spending some time looking at the resurrection. And I mentioned last night that tonight we'd be preaching about the incarnation. The res- resurrection has to do with the body. And so there's a passage here in the book of Hebrews to get us started that the Lord, that God had prepared a body for the Lord. And I want to look at that body and the preparation of that body. Hebrews chapter number 10 and verse number 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. I want to talk about that prepared body. A body hast thou prepared me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here. It's be good to be here these couple of days already. We pray for your blessing throughout tonight and tomorrow and Sunday, the Lord's Day. And uh, we pray for you to bless this church as you have been doing and continue to do that. Help these folks to be doing as we sang, serving you, being faithful until you come again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering wouldest thou not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Again, the resurrection has to do with the body. There would be no resurrection without the body of Christ. Okay, So we're going to talk about the preparation of that body. No death of Christ without his incarnation. The incarnation is a fancy word for him becoming flesh, simply becoming God, uh, becoming flesh. And of course, that's in Christ. So why? Why did God become flesh? I want to give you four reasons for the incarnation tonight. Most of our texts are going to be in the book of Hebrews. All right, the first one, first reason why for the incarnation, why Jesus had, uh, took on a body is to reveal God in the flesh. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Simply means that God revealed himself through the prophets, that's the word of God. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, that's Jesus Christ. So we have a revelation of God through the Word of God, given by the prophets, and a revelation through the person of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. We read verse 5. Let's keep reading. Verse number 6. Hebrews 10, 6. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. 
Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. I believe that's a reference to the Bible. In the volume of the book it is written of me. So the Bible reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read those first couple of verses of the book, that God who at sundry times spake in divers manners uh, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now we also have, and Hebrews will mention that later, I think in chapter 2, the ministry of the apostles, which basically gave us the New Testament. Okay, The prophets gave us the Old Testament, the apostles gave us the New Testament. That's generalizing everything, okay? Not everybody who wrote the New Testament was apostle. Not everybody who wrote the Old Testament was a prophet. So it's a generalized statement there. We have Christ revealed in the volume of the book. Now, God is invisible. He's a spirit, right? God is spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So that means that God is invisible. You cannot see God. He had to reveal Himself in bodily form. Now, let me think with you a little bit. There are four ways to get a body. First way is creatively. In the beginning, God created. Genesis, the end of chapter 1, on the sixth day of creation, and that's repeated again in chapter 2, God created Adam. And He created Adam without a man or a woman. He formed him from the dust of the ground, Genesis chapter 1 says. Then we can say that uh, a person can be formed formatively. God formed or made the woman. In fact, let's go back to it, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Let's go ahead and take the time to do that. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And uh, I like that thought. I like that concept because it seems like today folks are beginning at the wrong place. They're not beginning with the Bible. They're not beginning with Genesis. And so you hear all this talk in uh, the museums and uh, in the educational forums and so forth about evolution. They haven't gone back to the Bible. The Bible tells you how we got here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting working with with children. My wife and I worked with children for many, many years. Not all the time, but working with them again with the church we're working with now. By the way, I probably ought to tell you about that since you folks supported us for a, a while on that. Most children seem to me to know that we're created by God. But yet they're being taught in every place around them that they got here by evolution. I can't imagine the conflict that must be going on in the minds of the children when they hear from church or other places that God created and then they hear from other forms that we evolved. Now, the evolutionist doesn't typically teach that there is no God, but that's in effect what they're trying to say. God created the world. Well, anyway, what he did with the the woman, let's look at it. Chapter 2 is where he records this of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Notice the order. God created the man first. Then the woman. He brought her unto him. Not the other way around, folks. Not the other way around. God didn't bring the man to the woman. He brought the woman to the man to be what the Bible calls a help meet for the man. That's the Bible way. 
You can't improve upon that. You can't say, I have a better idea. Uh, it's not working for us. Let's try something else. Anytime you try to mix up God's way, you get mixed up. Alright? Uh, God's way is right, always has been right, always will be right. Politically correct or not, we're not interested in political correctness. We're interested in biblical correctness. Amen? Amen? This is our manual. When you buy a piece of equipment from the store, well, nowadays you have to get the manual online. They don't give them to you, but they used to give you a manual. Alright? How do you operate this thing? When God created you, He gave you a manual. It's called a Bible. How do you operate this thing called life? That's why we have church, folks. Okay, so we can go over the manual and find out how life is supposed to work. Well, anyway, God formed the woman. God took the rib from the man and made he a woman. Here we have God using a man, but there was no woman involved in the creation of this, of this woman. Okay? Uh, no mother in, in that sense. Okay? And then, normally, normally, all humans are born from the seed of a man and the seed of a woman. That's normal. So what we're talking about, the creative way and the formative way, what God is doing with Adam and Eve, was out of the normal. God's not creating men. And by the way, the Mormon theology, okay, we, God didn't create souls all over the place. Okay? Read your Bible again. Not the Book of Mormon, but your Bible. God created one man and Adam and uh, then the woman and everybody comes from them. And then there's a miraculous birth. It's the birth of Christ. Christ was conceived of the Holy Ghost and became a man. Here God used a woman, but there was no man. And of course we call this the virgin birth of Christ. So God became a man in order to reveal himself in the flesh. Since we can't see God, Jesus became a man so that we could see him. Now understand, we in this century, in this age, we didn't walk with Christ. The disciples must have had a tremendous privilege to walk with the Lord, all right, and to see Him, to watch Him perform the miracles, to hear Him preach His sermons. Uh, what a wonderful blessing that would have been. But it's interesting to me, when you read the book of Peter, Peter talks about, well, he's talking about the transfiguration where Christ descended, not, not, let me get that straight here, Jesus went with His disciples, Peter, James, and John, up into the Mount of Transfiguration, and then we find that Moses and Elijah came back from the dead and Christ was transfigured before their eyes. And Peter's recording this, his uh, testimony of it, all right, that these folks saw the Lord in person. What a glorious thing. But he said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. It's the word of God. You know, we might say, well, wow, it'd be nice if we could see Jesus or we would have been the, want the disciples to walk with the Lord by uh, the sea and watch Him perform the miracles. And, and we've been talking about this in our Sunday school class at, at home. Uh, pastor's been uh, dealing with it just recently. And uh, uh, the difference between Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly, what we call the synoptic gospels, and how they differ... And the liberals want to tell the story that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are recording the same events. All right? Well, that may or may not be the case. Okay? If Christ has a three and a half, four year ministry and he's preaching every day, we don't know, but possibly every day, uh, I was, and I was given the illustration in the last couple of weeks, I preached three times in three different churches 
using the same text, it was 1 Thessalonians 3 something, 3.10 I think. Anyway, and uh, my wife was there with all three services, and I started out the same with everyone, but every every one of the messages was different. Uh, Because I had so much material, I gave part of it to one church, part of it to another, part of it to the third church. But anyway, it was different. So I'm thinking, well, the Lord could have done that as well. You know, we read about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, 5, uh, 6, and 7, and he may have preached that hundreds of times. So, you know, the liberals are probably not right that Matthew, Mark, and Luke report, record these things all the same. And so uh, th- that's why one reason why there might be differences. Okay, well, the first time he preached it, he may have said it this way. The second time he preached it, he may have said it this way. Okay? Doesn't mean he contradicts himself. Okay, and Mark and Matthew and Luke are recording them as they heard those messages. I had a fellow tell me one time he couldn't believe the gospel because of the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I said, well, it's like three different fellows, four different fellows, you can include John, standing on a different street corner and watching the same accident. Each of them sees the same accident, but they see it from a different perspective. And so when they give their police report, each one of them gives a different, similar, but different report. Well, that's what John and Matthew and Mark and Luke are doing. Each one of them presenting the gospel from a different perspective. Well, anyway, I'm getting off the beaten path here a little bit, but but uh, God is a spirit. And so in order to reveal himself, he became flesh. So the first reason why for the incarnation is so that God could reveal himself in the flesh. The second reason for the incarnation was to defeat Satan. To defeat Satan. You're already here, I think. Well, no, we went to Genesis, didn't we? All right, so now we got to go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 this time. Hebrews chapter 2. A lot of times when I preach, I will tell folks that my favorite book of the Bible is the book I'm preaching out of. And so tonight my favorite book is the book of Hebrews. But uh, I like them all. They're all God's Word. Chapter 2, let's read verses 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So Christ took part of flesh and blood. That through death, he mu- and he had to have a body in order to die, right? And he has to have the death in order to have the resurrection. Okay, So you, you see my thinking as we're thinking about the resurrection this weekend. In the middle of verse number 14. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the second reason for the incarnation was to defeat Satan. Christ's purpose was to wrest from Satan the power of death. I don't understand all of that, how Satan got that in the first place, and how the Lord allowed him to to do that. I read the book of Job, and I I read how that uh, Satan came together, the sons of God were meeting together with God, and Satan came also, and and Satan decided to do things to Job, and, and he got permission from God to, to uh, trouble, uh, trouble Job. Don't take from that that every time you have trouble, it's from Satan. It may be, but it, but it may not be as well, because our Bible tells us that God is the author of calamity, of trouble. And uh, he sends that trouble. In fact, that's in one of my messages. I don't know if it's in this one or not. But uh, uh, to... To uh, yeah, I think we are going to get to that one uh, here later on. I've been studying three or four different messages, so I'm confused in my my head here. But anyway, um, 
What I want you to look at and think with me in the mind, we're not going to go back and look at it, all right? But in your mind's eye, maybe on a piece of paper if you're taking notes, you can put one column for Satan and one column for Christ, okay? On Satan's side, Satan wanted to be as God. That's what he told Eve when he was tempting her. You shall be as gods. He wanted to be as God. On the side of Christ, he was God and is God. He's not hoping to become God. He was and is God. Satan said, I think it's the Ezekiel, I uh, forget which chapter it is, where you read about Satan and he said, I will, I will be like the Most High. He was in heaven and he rebelled and he said, I will be like the Most High. Again, Christ on his side, he was the Most High. Satan said, question God when he's, when he's questioning with Eve. Hath God said? And that's what people are doing today. Is that really what God said? What God really meant to say, and preachers will do this. Preachers will say that, well, the King James is wrong here, and uh, what it really should say is, ooh, hold on a minute, that's undermining my Bible. Either God preserved His Word like He said He would, or He didn't. And if He didn't, we are of all men most miserable. We don't have any authority to stand on if God's Word is unknowable. He's revealed Himself, folks. He's given us His Word. He's preserved His Word. And Jesus said this. He didn't question God's Word. He said, It is written of Me. Look at... Follow it out in your Bible. It's several times when Jesus said that. It is written of Me. In fact, it's, it's more powerful, uh, I think, in the Greek language. You, don't, you can't bring it out in English because it's, it's bad English, but it's wonderful Greek. It is, right now, having been written, would be a way to translate, but that's not good English. Okay? I like that because I can get the flavor of that. It is right now, having already been written. So you can't change it! Amen? It is now, having already been written. And Jesus said that time and time again. It is written of Me. So He's not questioning God's Word. Satan said to Eve, Ye shall surely die. Or rather, no. He, he, I got it backwards, didn't I? Ye shall not die. <laughs> right? He said, ye shall not die. And what did Jesus do? Jesus died. Wow. Two opposites, right? Satan said, ye shall know good and evil. And we discovered it in the incarnation and in the, in the death of Christ that he took upon himself the sin of the whole world. So Satan brought sin into the world through a body. Okay? He tempted Eve through her body using the senses, the look, the taste, the smell. We don't know what kind of fruit it was. Typically we say it's an apple. We don't know. Okay? And she looked at it. She saw that it was good. And I'm sure the flavor of it was delicious, whatever it was. Alright? And then we have Christ who brought victory over Satan by taking on himself a body and, of course, being crucified in the flesh for mankind. Let me take you to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12, and verses 31 through 33. 
John chapter 12. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I think that's a reference to the crucifixion, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Alright, so verse number 31, now is this judgment, the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. So Christ came in a body in order to defeat Satan. A third reason for the incarnation is to learn obedience. Now I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. The book of Hebrews, of course, is a book presenting the Lord Jesus Christ, actually showing Him to be better than much of what the Old Testament gave to us. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Who, in the days of His flesh, uh, that's His body, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto Him that was able to save Him from death, and was heard in that He feared, though He were a son, yet learned He obedience, by the things which he suffered. So the third reason for the incarnation was to learn obedience. It's an interesting text. The days of his flesh is, of course, the incarnation. To save him from death, I believe, is a, res- is a reference to the resurrection. Jesus learned, or maybe we could say experienced, obedience because he had no sin, right? So he's not experiencing sin sin, not in the sense of doing it, only in the sense of taking our sin upon himself in his body. I'll talk about that in just a moment here. So he's learning obedience through suffering. That's an interesting concept. That's the purpose of, one of the purposes of suffering, so that you and I can learn obedience. Do you know why God gives you things to suffer? So that you can learn obedience. Follow me anyway. See, our temptation is, well, wait a minute, Lord. I said I'd follow you, but this is a little bit too much. I don't think I can follow you here. God wants us to follow even in the midst of suffering. That's when people quit on God. Well, I've been praying, I've been going to church, I've been doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing, and now I have to suffer. Whatever trouble it is. It could be financial, could be emotional, could be uh, spiritual, whatever. And so people will quit on God because of trouble. And how many people I've talked to that have told me that? I used to go to church. I used to pray. And uh, yet the Lord took my child. Or the Lord let me lose a job. Why did He let that happen? And we question God as if God has any faults. Does that God have any faults? No, He's a perfect God. He doesn't have any faults. Whatever happens in our life is not because God has a fault or made a mistake. You know, this whole gender business. Isn't that crazy? What people are saying is that God made a mistake. He made me a boy when I wanted to be a girl or a girl when I wanted to be a boy. I I still can't wrap my head around that. Why would a boy want to be a girl? I can't figure that out. Why would a girl want to be... Well, I can sort of figure out something about the girls, okay? My wife, I didn't know her this way when she was young. She tells me she was like a tomboy. 
did a lot of things the boys did. Okay? But she does not want to be a boy. She does not want to be a man. Anyway, there's a lot of things that we could talk about with that, but, but that's what we're saying is God made a mistake. God did not make any mistakes. No. He made you what you are on purpose. Now, I know a lot of things we have, you know, some input with. Too fat, too short, too skinny, too tall, too, you know, some we have, some we don't, you know. But we look at ourselves and say, well, if I just was like this person or that person, we're doing the same thing. We're questioning God and saying, well, God made some kind of mistake. God does not make any mistakes. He made you who you are because He wants you to be you and to give glory to God. That's your purpose. And we are prone to wonder, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, and if we'd have been there, we'd have done the same thing because we're a bunch of sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you might piously say, well, if I'd have been there, I wouldn't have taken another fruit. Oh, yeah, you would have. You would have taken that and more. You know? Right. Just like me. We're rebellious. It's born in our hearts. We need to learn obedience. We don't like obeying. None of us like being told what to do. None of us do. Children don't like their parents telling them what to do. Students don't like their teachers telling them what to do. Employees don't like their bosses telling them what to do and how to do it. But you do it anyway. I work for a company called Frylitz. I do it the Frylitz way. Do I think the Frylitz way is the best way? Well, it's pretty good. All right? But sometimes... I think the Lehenai's way. Right. Do I do it the Lehenai's way? Not unless I can get away with it. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm rebellious just like the rest of us. Okay. None of us like being told what to do. None of us like being told by the Word of God what to do. We think, ah, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's a big ogre up there. He can't tell me what to do. Oh, yes, He can. Just like your boss can. Okay? Just like your mom and dad can. Just like the judge can when you go to court. Okay? And so, we need to learn obedience. It's a lifelong lesson. Now, obedience in the Bible is often expressed with a concept of opened ears. Okay? Opened ears. Are you listening to the message? Do you have opened ears? I'm not going to turn to it, but Isaiah 50 and verse 5 says... The Lord God had opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. You see the opposite of the opened ears? The opened ears is you're listening. The opposite of the opened ears is rebellion. I'm not going to listen. Don't raise your hand. Have you ever done that? No. <laughs> Have your kids ever done that? Yeah. <laughs> Huh? Do you do it without actually putting your hands up there? Yeah. Okay. Do you do it when Pastor Hunt preaches? Don't answer it. Okay. I'm sure you do sometimes. Because that's our nature. We're rebellious by nature. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so we want to stop our ears. The Bible also uses the concept of inclining the ear. You ever go to the hospital and somebody's there and you can't hear them because uh, they they got a whisper or whatever and you incline your ear toward them. That's what you're supposed to be doing with the Bible. 
listening carefully and closely, he says, the Lord hath opened mine ear. I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. So we say, oh, I'm not going to listen. Ha, 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 ha. And then we turn away. Don't do that with God. Listen to Him. Obey what He says. And Or the psalmist. I'm not going to turn to this one either, but Psalm 40 and verse 6 says, it's actually, I think, a quote from this one, uh, similar at least, Sacrifice and offering, offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Now, we've kind of read some of that in Hebrews, right? Didn't God require the Old Testament sacrifices? Yeah, that's not what he's saying. He wanted them, but he said, you can do the sacrifices and not really be obeying. You mean, I can come to church and I can do the things I'm supposed to be doing and not really obeying? Uh-huh. Because obedience is a matter of the heart. Yes. Is your heart right with God? This is Dr. Lee Hennice, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached at church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again.